Please turn in your Bibles, Bibles to John's Gospel, the second chapter. Last week we looked at Jesus' first sign and talked a bit about signs being demonstrations of power, but not for power's sake. They are powerful acts with a purpose. And like we saw last week with Jesus turning water into wine, the purpose is to display His glory, uh, to reveal and demonstrate that Jesus really is the Son of God, that He really is divine, eternal, which we saw in in the prologue in chapter 1. Was God and with God in the beginning. And these signs are also done to lead folks to believe, to place their trust in the Lord Jesus. Now, last week's sign was rather low-key. Though it was a miraculous display of power, only a small handful of folks were privy to it. Only a handful saw and understood what He did. It was behind the scenes. But this week's sign is a bit more visible attention-grabbing. This one would make the headlines in the local paper. It was shocking. So I want to ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. After this, after the wedding, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. May God bless the teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, would you come this morning, and in the person of the Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher, our counselor, guiding us into truth, steering us clear from error, allowing this double-edged sword of your word to penetrate deeply even to the division of 
soul and spirit, bone and marrow. May it do the work in our lives and through our lives that you desire for the exaltation of Christ, for your glory. We pray these things. Amen. Please be seated. So here is Jesus' second sign. It's the second one that John tells us about with the expressly stated purpose of helping us believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing that we would find and have life in his name. Now this is an account of scripture that many are familiar with because Jesus being angry grabs folks' attention. All right, that's not something we soon forget. And if it seems especially familiar to you, it's because it was somewhat of an unconventional text that I chose to preach on this past Easter. And so if, if you're interested in a more thorough verse-by-verse exposition, I'd recommend listening to that podcast of the Easter sermon from 2018. Because this morning I want to paint in somewhat broader brush strokes. We'll look at some of the major themes that we find in this passage and see how those themes reveal Jesus' glory. And in revealing His glory, lead us to trust Him more. So here's what I want to look at. These broad themes. Number one, of the temple. Then I want us to look at protectiveness. Two types of protectiveness. Jesus felt protective of of the temple. That's why He was so angry. But the Jews, the religious leaders of the day, also felt protective of the temple. And we're going to look at that. And then we're going to look at the destruction of the temple and finally the resurrection of the temple. So beginning with the temple itself, last week we saw the setting, the location of this sign that Jesus did was important. Last week it was at a wedding. This week it's at the temple. It's in Jerusalem. Now, to think rightly about the temple, you need to think about it and understand it as the location for God's people to experience His presence. In in the very beginning... God's presence was full and free in the garden. But after Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion, they were cast out of God's presence. And the whole rest of the story, as you see it unfold, is about how to get back into God's presence. How to enjoy God's presence once again. And part of that story is that God instructs His people to construct a meeting place. I'll come and meet with you. You build it. I will come. And it starts out as the tabernacle, this this portable structure that can be moved with them as they wandered and wandered. But then a permanent structure was built. The temple itself, under Solomon's leadership, was built there in Jerusalem. And the tabernacle and the temple serve as proof positive of God's gracious desire to meet with His people. God wants His people to enjoy His presence. He wants to be in relationship with them. But as we see referenced in our passage today, you didn't just waltz up in there to experience His presence. You came by means of a sacrifice. You came by means of a bloody sacrifice. Blood had to be shed as a covering, as an atonement for your sinfulness. And then there was also, we see in our text today, for practical maintenance reasons, a a temple tax that had to be paid, an offering that was given for the 
for the upkeep of the temple. And so these two things mentioned in our passage today that you had to do if you wanted to come into God's presence, you had to acquire an animal for your sacrifice, you had to change your money into the local currency to pay this temple tax because people were coming from all over the place, many different regions with their own currency. The temple tax needed to be paid in the local currency. These things aren't bad in and of themselves. Money changing and buying animals and selling animals isn't immoral or moral. The problem crept in slowly, and I'm sure developed gradually, where this activity that used to take place across the valley from the temple, ever so slowly, became, well, it needs to be convenient, right? It needs to be quicker. It needs to be easier. And eventually it moved right into the temple itself. And when Jesus sees what's going on, his reaction is strong. His reaction is full of passion and a real sense of protectiveness. Jesus comes into the temple and all of a sudden, chaos. Jesus creates chaos in the temple. Can you picture verse 15 in your mind? Can you just even close your eyes and picture what it must have looked like and sounded like and felt like as he made a whip of cords and drove them out, animals included, and he poured out the coins and he flipped over their tables. Get out. It's breathtaking, really. And it's interesting that no one stopped him. He's he's just one man. There had to be bunches of money changers and sellers of animals. I'm sure they could have pretty easily banded together and said, wait just a minute. But no one did. No one. Could they sense his authority? Were they stunned in the very presence of God? Were they speechless? Jesus was furious that what was supposed to be happening at the temple and in the temple, people coming to meet with God, to enjoy His presence, to enter into that presence with with prayer and repentance and sacrifice, it's all out of whack. And we have to assume, we have to deduce that because Jesus is the perfect Son of God, His response to this is not out of whack. His response to this is perfectly measured. He's not flying off the handle. He's not acting irrationally. His seemingly wild response must be absolutely fitting to the nature of the problem. He sees that the pure worship of God has been defiled. It's been crowded out. The the low murmur of prayers. 
uh, the, the occasional sounds that I think would be pretty traumatic of, of animals being slaughtered for sacrifice. These are the noises that have been completely drowned out by the sounds of commerce, by the bleeding of hordes of animals. It's not a house of worship. It's a, it's a flea market. It's a bazaar. And Jesus is having none of it. Psalm 69 is, is quoted here um, in verse 17. What this whole situation makes the disciples think of. So apparently they were knowledgeable of the Scriptures. They'd been in temple worship and had been reciting and singing psalms. And it makes them think about this one of David, where David's lamenting his, his enemies and his adversaries. They're mocking him. They're deriding him. As he engages in worship, right? he's broken over sin and he's taking on sackcloth and ashes and he's fasting and he's made fun of for it. They point and they laugh and they make fun of it because what is a big deal to David is a joke to his enemies. Jesus comes into the temple that day and God's worship is a big deal for him. And his zealous response is more than warranted, especially when you consider the things that are supposed to be going on are hindered and the stuff that is going on inside the temple, the only place that this can be going on is in the outermost court of the temple, the court of the Gentiles. And so if you think about the temple in concentric circles, the, the Holy of Holies in the very middle, then the court of the Jews right outside of that, then the outermost court is the court of the Gentiles. So if you weren't physically, ethnically a part of God's people, but you had come to the place where you believe that Yahweh was the one true God and you desired to come and to worship Him, that's where you would be in that outermost court. That is, until it got annexed. Until it got taken over and sellers set up more and more tables and more and more stalls for animals. So this desire that God had all along that God's house should be a place of prayer and worship for all peoples has been completely forgotten, neglected by the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus feels a profound sense of protectiveness over what should be going on in his Father's house. But when he engages in these actions to cleanse the temple of this impure worship, he meets another type of protectiveness of the temple. So how in the world would folks who presumed themselves to be in charge of the temple, how would they respond to Jesus' bold, disruptive actions? Now, it would be expected, it would, it would be appropriate for them to ask about his credentials, right? On, on what authority do you take these actions, sir? 
but that's not exactly what they do. See, they should have done two things in that moment. They're standing back, their eyes are, they're the wide-eyed emoji, right? They're, what? Two things should have happened, and they both involve pausing. They should have paused for just a moment for some self-reflection, for a little evaluation. We don't like what he's done. We're, we're shocked by it, but is there a basis for it? Could there perhaps be some wrong on our part? Are we at fault here in any way in how we've been handling God's temple and how we've been overseeing worship? But there's none of that. There's no reflection, and there's certainly no repentance. The second thing they should have done is paused and given at least a passing thought to, could this be? Perhaps, is it Him that we've been waiting for, the the Lord's anointed one? Maybe? Could some specific prophecies rung a little bell in the backs of their minds at this event. Malachi 3 says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into the temple. Gosh, that definitely fits. (laughs) Just out of the blue, here's this guy. And what's he doing? Well, that was prophesied about too. Zechariah 14, on the day of the Lord... No longer will there be traitors in my house. There were a few dots that could be connected if there had been a pause for some reflection, right? Is that our practice, right? If perhaps you have someone who loves you enough to come to you and say, "Uh, wait a minute, what do you think you're doing? Do you pause? Do you reflect? Do you evaluate? You might not like the way they did it. They might have gone about it all wrong. But is there some truth to it? Instead of pausing, what do they do? They say, all right, Jesus, do a trick for us. Jump through a hoop. Roll over. Show us a sign. Prove that you have the authority to do this. How ironic. They demand a sign to justify the sign that they've just completely missed. Jesus cleansing the temple is the sign. But they miss it and they say, all right, do something, Jesus. Prove yourself to us. One of the commentaries I'm using is D.A. Carson, and it is gold. And especially this quote about this demanding of a sign. A sign that would satisfy them, presumably some sort of miraculous display performed on demand, would have signaled the domestication of God. That sort of, quote-unquote, God, 
does powerful stunts to maintain allegiance. And that kind of allegiance is not worth having. Indeed, if the authorities had eyes to see, the cleansing of the temple already was a sign. They should have thought through and deciphered in terms of Old Testament Scripture. See, the fact that they ask for a sign, they ask for a miraculous sign, betrays what they suspect. They've got a suspicion deep down that this guy, at the very least, is a prophet sent from God. Right? If, they're, if they're asking for a sign, they suspect he might be able to do one. And that ought to stop them in their tracks. It ought to humble them. It ought to ultimately bring them to repentance, but it doesn't. Because they're trying to protect something. But unlike Jesus, they're not trying to protect the purity of God's worship. They're trying to protect their power and their privilege. They're trying to protect the status quo so they can remain in positions of influence And Jesus is messing all that up. He's rocking the boat. And he does and he doesn't cooperate with their demand for a sign. He offers a sign. It's just not one that they'll take him up on. Verse 19. Tear it down. Destroy it. You're so concerned about the temple, tear it down. And nobody, not even his disciples in the moment, understand what he's talking about. What a shocking suggestion, right? And there are layers of irony here. Jesus tells them, tear the temple down, destroy it. And in their hard-heartedness, this causes them to seek to destroy Jesus instead. We've got to protect our places of power and influence. We've got to get rid of any threats. So to protect our temple, this Jesus has to go. And that's exactly what Jesus meant in the first place. That he would be destroyed. Zeal for your house will consume me. It will eat me up. It will be my undoing. The physical structure of the temple was never anything more than a preview. It was never anything more than a trailer for a coming attraction. See, here's this temple. Here's the tabernacle. Here's a way that you can kind of sort of meet with God and enjoy His presence in a limited capacity one time a year mediated through bloody sacrifices brought by a high priest. The temple was a way to meet with God, but Jesus would be the final, once-for-all, bloody sacrifice. And He Himself would be the great high priest who offered the sacrifice of His own life 
He himself is our temple. He is how we can meet with God and enjoy his presence. And his resurrection, his rising on the third day, tear it down. Three days later, what's going to happen? Proves that he has defeated for all time our enemies of sin and death. Proves that the Father has accepted his suffering and death in place of our own. That is, in fact, what should have been the focus at the temple that day. Remembering and celebrating the wonderful, gracious rescue of God's people. That is the whole reason, after all, that Jesus is there in the first place. You see that in verse 13. The Passover was at hand. There hadn't been a cross yet. Couldn't have understood God's rescue in that way, but the Passover was at hand. And Jesus, in perfect obedience to the law, goes up to the temple. The Passover is one of three times during the year that you go up to the temple. You make the trip. Your presence at the temple was required. It was required so that you could come and remember and worship because many, many years before, God's people were rescued. They were delivered while they took refuge under the blood of an innocent lamb. That was a very real rescue for those people who experienced it firsthand. And it was but a shadow and a preview of a greater rescue to come. The rescue that we on this side of the cross, have fully realized. The rescue that is to be front and center every single time we gather for worship. Our glorious Savior sacrificed Himself that we might come to meet with and enjoy the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the temple. Thank You for the temple, the lowercase t, temple, the preview, the shadow, the type that came before, the appetizer that would whet our appetites for more. And we thank You and praise You, Lord Jesus, who is our temple. We see Your glory in that You were not only the One who offered sacrifice for us as our great High Priest, but You were the sacrifice. You were the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Help us to worship You rightly. Help us to rid Your sanctuary of noise and of anything that would crowd You out. 
make us hungry. Grant to us the faith that we need that we might feed on you at your table. We ask this in your name and for your sake. Amen.